0: This is the Guardian. Investiere in dein Wissen mit diesem Podcast. Investiere in deine Zukunft mit Xtrackers ETFs. Unser Anspruch ist es, dich zu inspirieren, deine finanzielle Zukunft selbst in die Hand zu nehmen. Investiere Schritt für Schritt mit Xtrackers, dem ETF- und ETC-Anbieter der DWS. Besuche xtrackers.de und starte jetzt. Zusammen wachsen. Investitionen unterliegen Risiken. Bei diesem Beitrag handelt es sich um eine Werbemitteilung, herausgegeben von der DWS International GmbH, mit Sitz in Frankfurt.
1: It's been a busy week on the Science Desk here at The Guardian. A certain tech billionaire is finally putting chips into people's brains.
2: Elon Musk is saying his Neuralink company has successfully implanted one of its wireless brain chips in a human for the first time.
1: A new research suggests Alzheimer's can be transmitted via rare medical accidents. Plus, our Prime Minister's dietary habits have gone viral. That's an important discipline for me, but it means that I can then indulge myself in all the sugary treats that I like for the rest of the week, which uh, I tend to enjoy. So today, we're rounding up some of the science stories that have caught our attention this week. I'm The Guardian Science Editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. I'm joined by Hannah Devlin, Science Correspondent at The Guardian. Hannah, first of all, let's talk about the news earlier this week that Elon Musk's Neuralink has implanted a chip into a human for the first time. Remind us what Neuralink is.
2: Yeah, so Neuralink is Elon Musk's brain-computer interface company. And the broad idea is that you're using an implant in the brain to read out the signals and translate them into either a movement or into kind of reading out you know, human language even. Um, And this is a a rapidly advancing field. We've seen some really big papers published last year from the sort of more academic side on showing the types of information you're now able to extract from the the human brain, being able to read out people's thoughts, essentially. And then on the clinical side, we've also seen a series of trials coming through, looking at using brain signals to control limb movement, to give um, movement back to people who've been paralysed. And Elon Musk has been wanting to enter this uh, market for a while. His company, Neuralink, has been developing its own brain-computer interface and got approval last year to do its first trial. Um, And we think it's in tetraplegia patients. um, That's who they were recruiting, although we're not completely sure of the um, exact details of who's participating. And so this week they announced that they'd successfully done the first implant on their first patient.
1: When we talk about implanting chips in people's brains, people might think of sort of postage stamp-sized chunks of silicon that are being used, but these are far smaller than that. I mean, how do they work?
2: Yeah, so I mean, you've got to remember here, the brain is an incredibly delicate, complex piece of anatomy. And I think up until now, we've been in this phase where it's not really been clear how much we're going to be able to get out of the brain, how much of it is just so difficult to you know, unravel what those signals mean and translate. But I think, you know, in the last few years, there have been advances, you know, partly in machine learning and AI that have changed what kind of information we're able to get out of the brain. And so it feels as though we're now entering quite an interesting engineering phase where the questions moved on from just being about, you know, is it possible? What are we going to be able to get out? To what are these implants actually going to look like? And so the challenge is getting something into the brain or on the brain in such a way that it's in direct contact enough to be able to read out these tiny electrical signals that are flashing back and forward between neurons, but also delicate enough not to damage the brain tissue. In Neuralink's case, the approach they've taken is this sort of array of hair-like threads, the 64 of these flexible threads penetrating the brain tissue into the motor area of the brain, so the area that controls movement. And these threads have got more than a thousand electrodes on them that are picking up these tiny little electrical signals of the neurons and trying to translate that into the intention of the person who's got the implant in the brain so that they can, you know, just using their thoughts, control the movement of something.
1: And he's indicated that the company's first product is going to be called telepathy, which, you know, fabulous. I mean, it sounds pretty sci-fi. Do we know anything about that?
2: I mean, you know, this is Elon Musk for you. A lot of the other companies in this area, the reason why you haven't heard of them, even though, you know, there've been implants going into patients dating back to 2004, they were entirely focused on the clinical applications for very, very severely paralysed patients. Whereas Elon Musk is just you know, with everything he does, he's got this grand vision, which, you know, to be fair, is what's made him a brilliant entrepreneur um, and, you know, tech sort of visionary. Although it is worth saying that not all of his visions have come to fruition. But, you know, he sees this as a, a much grander project to be able to give anyone the ability to control their phone or computer through just thinking and, you know, this idea of super intelligence, effectively being able to merge your brain and your thinking with computer power. So I think that is partly what's captured people's imagination, that he sees the potential of these devices um, as going way beyond clinical applications. You know, I don't know whether that fills you with excitement or dread. Um, It probably depends on your mindset about these things.
1: I mean, you're kind of wondering whether this is the sort of technology that represents the foothills of the the mountain where we end up in a sort of ghost in the shell scenario where healthy people have devices in their central nervous systems that allow them to communicate with each other and communicate with the internet and things like that. I mean, yeah, I mean decades if it, it, down the line.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you if you sort of read Elon Musk's tweets about this stuff and just took them at face value, then yeah, that's probably where you'd think we're heading, Um but, the, you know, there definitely are neuroscientists who work in you know, areas around this who are worried about that scenario and, you know, are saying we need to consider the ethics of some of this stuff now. Because, you know, if we are in the foothills of, you know, heading up into that kind of crazy scenario, we need to think about it before it's sort of already, already upon us. So Ian, another story that related to brains that got a lot of attention this week was the news of five rare cases of Alzheimer's that have been discovered by researchers at UCL. What's happening with that?
1: Yeah, so this is a really interesting one and probably worth flagging up at the beginning that, you know, because this, this could easily become sort of a, a scare story if it's misunderstood. But these researchers have found the first evidence of Alzheimer's spreading through a, a now band substance called human growth hormone which was in the past taken from human cadavers taken from the pituitary gland of of dead people and and used to improve growth in in people who needed it now nearly 2000 people in the UK received this human growth hormone between 1959 and 1985 when it was banned and we knew that that growth hormone could spread a condition called creutzfeldt-jakob disease CJD and that's a neurodegenerative disorder but these researchers have found that if your growth hormone had some of this amyloid beta protein, which is one of the protein aggregates linked to Alzheimer's disease, it's not the only one, there's also tau tangles that we need to sort of be aware of, but those could then in some patients give rise, it seems, to the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. I mean, one of one of the, the five patients they found these signs in was, was as young as 38. So it's sort of early onset and signs of that which which seem... To be linked to the growth hormone they received, and because of what was in that growth hormone.
2: And just to be clear, um, this doesn't mean that Alzheimer's is contagious in any way.
1: No, no. So the research isn't about saying Alzheimer's is is contagious. I mean, this you know it it it's a a very specific thing that happened here that that put these particular this small number of people at risk. But what it's really about, what this research is really about, is it gives us some insights into what's going on with Alzheimer's disease, sort of suggesting that there are links between the processes that give you CJD, and CJD is spread by these misfolded proteins called prions that can spread through through the brain, this is saying that, you know, there may be similar processes going on with these amyloid beta proteins, which form plaques in the brain that are harmful to brain cells in, in Alzheimer's disease. So there may be some sort of similarities there. And, and, and that is an interesting thing to understand purely in terms of the mechanisms of how Alzheimer's manifests, but also how it actually spreads through a given individual's brain.
2: Hmm. And, and do, does that insight you know, open up new ideas or, or sort of steer things um, towards um, a better understanding and also potentially how to tackle Alzheimer's?
1: So I think it gives us a couple of things. And first of all, is there's an idea in Alzheimer's research that the the pathology that is causing the damage in the brain spreads through the brain via things like amyloid beta. Those problematic proteins can spread across synapses between brain cells and this supports that this backs that up this suggests that if you can get an infusion that is contaminated with amyloid beta then you can have that effect that that can seed and then can start manifesting as this kind of problem so it really does back up that idea of almost how the 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 damage that gives rise to alzheimer's that we describe as alzheimer's how it kind of spreads through an individual's brain and that's interesting because that's gives you a sense of, okay, what might we need to do to to try and prevent it spreading around the brain? Maybe, you know, in the future, people will have amyloid beta and early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, but perhaps there'll be ways of sort of containing it within, you know, particular brain regions. I think the other thing that's really interesting about this is that it flags up and really puts a sort of an extra emphasis on the need to ensure that when you're doing surgery on people with Alzheimer's, you need to make sure that those surgical tools that are used are very well sterilized before they get used in other patients. Because this does say that, you know, those, those amyloid beta proteins can be problematic um, if, if they get into other people. Now, that sterilization, or well, those surgical tools, has improved dramatically since the whole CJD problem we faced in the UK back in the 80s and, and earlier. I think that's something that surgeons are on top of, but it flags up, again, the importance of that, I'd say. Finally, Hannah, and on a lighter note, we learned this week that the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has this rather unusual start to his week, doesn't he?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm still going to get my head around this, that you would choose Monday <laughs> as the day. Um, but we heard that... Um, Rishi Zunak has an extreme fast every Monday or, you know, he tries to do it on Mondays. And this involves from 5 p.m. on Sunday all the way through to 5 a.m. on Tuesday, not eating anything and just having water, tea, black coffee. Um, so it's sort of an extreme version of the 5-2 diet where you have two days of the week that you have sort of 500, 600 calories. But, you know, he's going all in and just having one, one day of total fast.
1: And have we got any sense of why he's doing it? I mean, are there any sort of scientifically robust benefits of of putting yourself through this kind of fasting?
2: Um, I mean, you know, th- there are a lot of studies on fasting, most of them in rodents, so we have to um, you know take that factor into account. I think you know what we can say is that if you have an extreme fast like this, your body shifts from burning carbs to burning fat, so it's going to start burning through your fat supplies. What the broader health benefits of that are, you know, I think it's a little bit less clear. So, you know, there are some indications from um, some of the studies that it could lead to something called metabolic flexibility, where you're able to switch between that carb burning and fat burning a bit more easily and maybe have a bit more of a steady burning of energy. And then there is some evidence of doing long fasts, your body can start producing something called ketones, which can sharpen your thinking and almost put you into this hyper-alert state. But it seems unclear whether 36 hours is long enough to put you into that sort of almost like a fight-or-flight mode. And then there's um, been a suggestion that it could trigger something called autophagy, which is it's a sort of cellular spring cleaning, effectively, where different components um, of your cells are recycled or swept out. And there is some evidence that this could help with DNA repair, that it could potentially have some sorts of anti-aging properties. But, you know, most of these studies have been done in mice and rats, which have quite a different lifespan, which, you know, probably put on fasts that are more than the 36 hours, however extreme that might feel to us. So, I don't know. I think I I wouldn't say that there's a kind of absolutely clear-cut benefit if you're just going on the science.
1: So, those are some of the supposed benefits, but are there any potential downsides to this extreme fasting?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he, he did say in a BBC interview about this that it allows him, you know, he, he does it as his way of balancing out his penchant for drinking Coke and eating lots of sweets for the rest of the week, which doesn't seem the most healthy approach to diet. You know, there may also be negative consequences that haven't been studied as much. So things like muscle loss, you know, if you're having an extreme fast, you could be wasting muscle. And also maybe you feel like doing less movement and less exercise if if you're fasting. And then, you know, you've got to wonder what the psychological effects are of having that kind of extreme fast. And it calls into question, you know, whether your judgment might be affected by just just feeling really grumpy and hungry.
1: It makes me wonder if our Prime Minister has a sort of a latent sort of West Coast tech bro inside him.
2: I mean, it is exactly the kind of thing that, you know, you hear these sort of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs um ascribing part of their, you know, personal success, these extreme fasts, almost a sort of biohacking approach to, you know, health. And like this obsession with being able to monitor and almost digitize every aspect of your life, I wonder whether it's partly that the sort of psychological boost you get from seeing you maybe you're monitoring your glucose and seeing a little spike of something going up on a screen and thinking yes that's had a you know it's had a positive effect on me um i don't know i mean it does feel very much in line with that kind of approach to to health
1: and you do wonder if if rather than fasting to sort of get yourself producing ketones you can just sort of develop ketone-laced burgers that we could actually achieve the same result without having to put ourselves through such such misery.
2: I'm sure there's a company out there making exactly that.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Hannah, for wrapping up an interesting week. I'm sure we'll see you again soon.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: Thanks again to Hannah Devlin. And that's all from us this week. The producer was Eli Block. The sound design was by Tony Onochuku. And the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then.
0: Investiere in dein Wissen mit diesem Podcast. Investiere in deine Zukunft mit X-Trackers ETFs. Unser Anspruch ist es, dich zu inspirieren, deine finanzielle Zukunft selbst in die Hand zu nehmen. Investiere Schritt für Schritt mit X-Trackers, dem ETF- und ETC-Anbieter der DWS. Besuche xtrackers.de und starte jetzt. Zusammen wachsen. Investitionen unterliegen Risiken. Bei diesem Beitrag handelt es sich um eine Werbemitteilung, herausgegeben von der DWS International GmbH mit Sitz in Frankfurt.